Welcome back to the Suzanne Venker Show, where men and women are equal in value but wildly different by nature. Join us here every week when we challenge the culture's hugely flawed narratives regarding men, women, sex, and love. This program is brought to you in part by Let's Get Real, where forensic accountant Tiffany Couch uses her financial skills to shine the light on the real issues we all face every day. If you would like to make decisions based on facts and information rather than on rhetoric and cultural pressure, go to letsgetreallife.com, a place where you can find tools to improve your communication skills and to increase your connection to humanity. That's letsgetreallife.com. Today on this episode, I'm doing my first solo podcast. But first, a couple of quick announcements. As some of you may know, I've moved the Suzanne Venker Show from the Hair Saloon corporate offices to my home, and I'm in great need of patron support. The only way countercultural ideas and information can spread is for those of us who represent the silent majority to work together. Podcasts are a great way to push back against the lies the culture tells, but I need your help. Just go to the SuzanneVenkerShow.com and scroll down until you see the Become a Patron button, where you'll find four very economical levels. And if you have a business you want to promote, there's even an option for that. Finally, if you or someone you know is looking for marriage or relationship coaching, just go to my website, SuzanneVenker.com, and click on Coaching at the top. There's even a newly married four-session package designed to help couples save their marriage before it starts by highlighting the four main potential stressors of every marriage. If you can resolve those now so they don't become a problem later, you're well on your way to a successful marriage. So... Over the years, I've had a lot of people ask me, um, well, all kinds of things, (laughs) Um, but they they mainly want to know about my background, um, how I got to sort of not just be where I am, but think the way I do so counterculturally and and how that worked out for me in my personal life. Some people know I was married before and they want to know about that. Um, They want to know what my, you know, technical background is, all of the above. And... um, I thought I would take this opportunity for the first time after one year. I can't believe it's been a year since I first sat in front of a microphone for you all. If you remember, that was at a radio station, and it was also a podcast. I'm sure you you guys are podcast listeners, so you probably always listened via the podcast. But then that radio station was bought out by another radio station um, about three months in, and I grabbed my producer uh, and 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 moved over to the Hair Saloon corporate offices. Uh, they were my sponsor for the subsequent months um, to continue my podcast, which was awesome. It was really great that I was able to do that. And I've now and then I lost that support as a result of COVID. So I've now shifted over to my home, which is a really big deal because it's all very new. And um, one thing I have not done in this past year is is just done a podcast on my own. So I thought I would take this opportunity to answer some of those questions people have had over the years and just sort of go through my background and how I got to where I am. And then I'll land with, you know, what's happening now um, with my work, most importantly, and to the extent that it's helpful or informative or entertaining. Um, great. So, um, I think, I think one of the things that makes me unique or different from my contemporaries is that I had a very unusual mother. Um, 
well, it's kind of an interesting background with both my parents, but for good ways and bad ways. Um, but as far as the way I think, I'd have to say um, that that their being so different from most people their age as well had a had a big effect on me. So my mom was um, she was born in 1930. My dad was born in 1922. They are both now gone, and um, she they both had MBAs. Uh, she became a stockbroker during it was in the 60s. Um, and actually, that's how they met. My father was a CPA and my mother was a stockbroker. And so money-wise, <laughs> I had a leg up there, too, because they were very, very, very frugal. and Or at least my mother was. My dad was, too, but he probably would have spent more had he been allowed, which is another conversation. Um, but she grew up in the Great Depression. Well, I mean, they, they both did, but she was much more dramatically affected by it than he was. And so she actually kind of had... I mean, there's a name for what she was. They call it an underspender. She actually really, literally could not spend money. It just, it, it never went away. So they were pretty good at, at managing it um, and, and not so much spending it, <laughs> although maybe that is good. Um, at any rate, um, I, so she, she did that for a number of years. She was basically in the workforce for all told maybe 15 years at a time when all of her contemporaries, of course, were getting married and having babies and more babies than she had. She just had two, my sister and me. So she ended up quitting when my sister was five and I was three. And I grew up hearing, or at least getting the message, whether it was, you know, stated outright or just, I gleaned it from, from her modeling, um, that, you know, anybody can do anything they want to do in this country, male or female. You just have to want it and do the work. And there you go. Now, at the same time, I also got the message that, A, family was number one and the most important thing. And number two, there's only so many hours in the day and you can only do so much. So the whole idea that I would, um, you know, grow up and either um, become a mother or become some hard-nosed career woman was just never in my – it never even entered my brain. I was always going to do some form of both – but being a mom came first. That's it, you know? And so that, that, what that did was set me on a journey of, of preparing and mapping out a life that would allow me to move in and out of the workforce as the needs of my kids change and as my life changed because a woman's life has seasons and depending on how many children you want and what it is that you want to do professionally, you know, you're going to have to make some concessions. So, um, I guess when I think about that particular topic, because that's the very first book I ever wrote, it was tackling that issue of um, balancing work and family, and the fallout of that, and how to how to make how to manage that, and 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 have a life that actually works, that is not uh, filled with guilt and stress, which mine was not. And I stand by the fact that I had a leg up in the way I thought, and so I started mapping that out way early in the game, like at eighteen. And when I was in college, I was talking about <laughs> balancing those two things when in college people don't really talk about that. So I ha you have to be comfortable sort of being different from the people around you, you know, and taking some, some flack, I guess, um, which isn't a problem for me, but might be for some other people. But you don't have to share what you're – well, I don't know. I mean, I guess if you're making decisions, it's kind of obvious 
you know, it's going to come up. But at any rate, so when it comes to that topic, um, that's what made me different from a lot of other women my age. And so I didn't fall for that. I never, I wasn't somebody who was a feminist at one point and then changed my tune. I never fell for it from the get-go because that whole mentality is mired in victimhood. And I wasn't raised to be a victim. I was raised to naturally be empowered as a human, as a person, without any group or identity uh, politics at all. So, so it's very, very, very different way of viewing the world. And it's obviously, in my opinion, a much more productive way of viewing the world. So that's sort of my upbringing in terms of what I got on that issue. Um, so from there, I went to college. I went to Boston University. I'm from the Midwest. And I became a teacher. I mean, that was, that's my actual degree. And that's what I did in my 20s. And I'm not going to spend too much time on that. But I ended up not staying in that profession um, I quit several jobs and was pretty horrified by what I saw in the schools, um, specifically with respect to the bureaucracy and the discipline that um, the upper management, or I don't know, I guess you don't call them upper management in schools, but the principal and the vice principal simply couldn't handle. I mean, I could have done a better job at 23 than they were doing at 43. You know, it was one of those things where I was just so frustrated at the way they handled things. And I think that was, and I ended up quitting. I didn't join a union. You know, I did everything different from what you're supposed to do. And I didn't realize then, because after I quit there, I started my first book, actually. I got, that's when I very, very, very first picked up a pen and paper or got on the computer um, and to tell my story. And I got up to like 85 pages on the computer. I remember that for this first book I had written. And I didn't know it then, but I had gotten a bug with respect to being um, a contrarian, I guess, and not really knowing that about me ahead of time. I, ju I just sort of fell into that. And I never ended up finishing that book because I, in the meantime, had married my college sweetheart and we lived up east on the East Coast. He's from New York. Um, and we got divorced. So we separated. So I you know, my, my personal life went in the toilet. So I just never could finish that book. Um, so, all right. So that was, I don't know, 1995. I think the, the divorce was finalized. Um, I ended up moving back home to the Midwest where I ultimately later met and married my husband. Uh, that was 1998. Um, and I ended up, let's see. So yeah, so we got married in 1998 um, and we have two children. Um, when I was home with, oh, I, I was teaching, I, I was teaching in private schools temporarily, or I mean, not temporarily. I was, I was filling in for, um, somebody on maternity leave. So yeah, I guess it was temporary, um, at a private school and I had a much better experience with that. But at any rate, I ended up pregnant about a year and a half or a year into our marriage and quit. I remember that was sort of met with skepticism too. Well, you don't need to quit just because you're pregnant. But again, there again, I was planning on staying home and I was planning on being, becoming an educational consultant, something I could do a few hours a week from home. And I wanted to get that underway when I was pregnant. See, always thinking ahead, always planning. Um, that's part of my 
personality as well. And so they looked at me kind of funny, but whatever, that's fine. So I went home and sort of got that underway and um, did tutoring and consulting. And then somehow that shifted over to my first book again. I started to write when my um, oldest was was asleep. So I was basically at home um, just with one baby. My husband was at work and I was a full-time mom. And then when she was sleeping, I sat at the computer essentially and wrote my first book. So before I move forward, just a quick word on my first marriage because so many people are interested in that. Um, the, the upshot, I mean, I've never talked about this ever publicly, so bear with me here. Um, at the end of the day, he and I did not share the same values and priorities. And I knew that going in, which is why I feel so strongly about helping other young women get this right. Um, but I thought I could change him. I thought I could love him into submission, so to speak, you know, like in other words, I was from the Midwest. He was from the East coast. He was very, 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 uh, career focused, um, to the, to, I mean, to a degree where family was sort of an afterthought and the idea of moving away from Manhattan was, it was just not an option. That's where he was going to be. And if, if I wanted to be with him, that's, that's where I had to live. And so just a real, a real clash of values that became, if, I mean, it was clear somewhat before, but it was abundantly clear in the two or three years after we married, because some things occurred that sort of solidified that. So, um, you know, that's really it in a nutshell is that is is that we didn't share the same values and priorities. We wanted different things, you know, and, um, but it didn't have anything to do with how we felt about each other. And I think that's where it gets really tricky when you're young because everything's about love, 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 love. And this idea that it's going to carry you through, but of course it isn't, it isn't enough. Love is not enough. It's never enough. You've got to have other things in place. So it was sort of a, a lesson in trying to force a relationship to exist based solely on love, really. Um, thinking that, again, you, could, you, can, you can love them into submission. Um, and I think he felt the same way, loving me into submission about you know, living up there and living a different kind of lifestyle than I wanted and, and so on and so forth. But at any rate, so that's, that's the gist of what happened there. So when I wrote my first book, when I sat down to write my first book, it was on this whole issue. In fact, I called it, it was on the issue of, of work and family and what children need and where motherhood is going to, to eventually take over in a woman's life to such a degree that, you know, whatever she was doing before, you know, either pales in comparison or just seems insurmountable as far as um, being able to continue on as life was before. And I think that's something that people learn the hard way. You know, they, they don't realize that the life you're living pre-kid is not in any way manageable post-kid. And going back to what I said about my upbringing, I think I had a leg up because I knew this because I had watched my mother, not excuse me, I didn't watch her. I heard about her having been a stockbroker and my sister and I were home with essentially a nanny 
um, for those first few years. And it was hell for her for a thousand different reasons. And she ended up telling me there's just no way to do this at the same time. Something has to give and the kids need you and that's it. So, so figure it out. So because I had this mom who did this at a time when women didn't, I, I knew this. I don't think a lot of people understand how dramatically their lives are going to change. And I don't think they understand children's needs at all. Um, and I just happened to have a leg up there as well because I was, um, you know, I was an education major and I spent time studying daycare and studying, you know, the child development in school. So this was my field as well. Um, so, so that was never an op that was never in question what I, how I was going to be living my life post kid. So, okay. So I have her and I started to write a book or, I mean, I did write a book, but I titled it the work of motherhood. Now this is where things get interesting as far as <laughs> the media and publishing and, um, sort of what spiraled from that point on for me professionally. Um, so I wrote this book called The Work of Motherhood, and I, I had so many rejections you cannot even believe, or maybe you can. Uh, so it took many agents and many um, publishers' rejections until I found an agent that took it on, and then she was then not able to sell it. So I had to do that on my own as well, and I ended up going through um, the entire book of literary agents and publishers that was in Barnes & Noble until I found one that I thought would be a fit because at that time they, well, I don't know, they might still exist, but they, they would write their mission statement that each publishing company has a mission statement about, you know, what they're, what they're all about. And the mission statement was something about challenging the status quo. So I thought that was a good fit, sent it on. And wouldn't you know it, I heard from them and made a sale. So that was very exciting. Um, but here, here's where things changed. This is really interesting. So the gist of that book, as I said, it was called The Work of Motherhood. And the argument was basically, hey, babies and toddlers have needs. Parents need to meet them. I don't care which parent does it, but it's, it's, you have to do it. And here's why. And here's how to manage it with your work. And, and you know, just, it was just all about work and family. Um, but from a decidedly different lens than you hear in the, in the media and the culture, for sure. So... My then publisher, who I'm no longer with because they don't exist. I mean, the company doesn't exist. They exist. Um, changed the title. And a lot of people don't know this, but if you go the traditional publishing route, which I no longer do exactly, I, I'll explain that later, but if you sign up with a publisher, um, they, you essentially sign away your rights to titling your own work. So you propose a title that's called the working title, and ultimately they decide if they want to use it or not. They did not. And what they did was they took that book, which was very controversial at the time, more than I realized, um, because the, at the time the mommy wars were raging. This was 2000. And they, I'll never forget where I was sitting when they called me and said, we've decided to change the title and here's what it is. They wanted to title it seven myths of working mothers. And then they pulled out 
sort of arguments that I made within the content and made each each one of them a chapter title so that so they didn't it wasn't that they changed the content it's they changed the angle and this is very very important in publishing um, you how you market something is is everything so because they came at it from a much more controversial attacking working mothers angle when I was just wanting to support mothers who were at home and encourage them to do so and explain why it's, why it's important, why it matters. Um, that changed everything. I mean, clearly. So by the time it came out, which by the way, it takes a year and a half to two years to get a book on the shelf. So <laughs> there's a lot of little tidbits you can learn about publishing. If you stay with me here. Um, it, um, the very, very, very first experience I had with the media was that glamor magazine put my book in their do's and don'ts section, or at least they had one then do read this, don't read this. And so they had a pro abortion book that you're supposed to read. That was a do. And then my book was underneath it. And that was a don't. That was my very first, um, introduction to media bias. And at the same time, I had my first experience on CNN and I remember, so when you go on any television news program, you have what's called a pre-interview the night before where the producers will call you and gather statements from you essentially for what you want to say the next day. And of course I, I was very green, so I didn't understand that they were not, um, <clears throat> on the up and up that they had. I mean, I still, I mean, I understood that the media was not in my court, but I didn't think they were corrupt. I really didn't have any clue at the time. Um, so they would, I, we'd had this nice conversation. I thought it was really, really nice. And I just, you know, they took notes and next thing you know, I get on the next day and I remember it was Carol Lynn, Carol L I N. I don't think she is around anymore. Um, but she obviously was a working mother. So to then interview someone whose book looks like it's going on the attack, obviously that's not going to go well, right? So, and it didn't. And they twisted my words that I said the night before. And it was just, it was crazy. It was totally crazy. And I was just a throne. I was really, I mean, I think I handled myself okay. But um, behind the scenes, I was pretty much, Wow. 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 And that was just the beginning. Like I, there are so many more stories about media bias that I dealt with. Um, but that, that was my, that was my introduction. And from there, it just kind of went downhill. Honestly. Um, my relationship with the media has always been adversarial for obvious reasons. I mean, it's, it wasn't just that book. I mean, every book I write is, is something opposite of what they want out there. So their resistance to it is huge. Um, so that's, that's what happened there with my first book. That's how, that's how it looked behind the scenes. Um, then I had a second child. My two, ch I have two children, three years apart, my son. And, um, I pretty much dropped out of sight for the next five years, you know, taking care of both of them because the difference between one and two is huge. <laughs> Any mother listening knows this. Um, I mean, any parent, well, 
whoever's home knows this. When you have just one, you can work around that child's schedule very easily. Once you throw in the second one, all bets are off. So um, the only thing I did during that five-year period when I was home with them was um, blogged. That was when blogging just started to – it was all a brand-new thing. It was very exciting for moms at home because they can, um, you know, play around a little bit with that while they're there, which was great. Um, and then after they were both in school, both in first grade, or I mean both in school from eight to three, that's when I wrote my second book. And that was called The Flip Side of Feminism. Um, and then I don't know what year we're at now, but here, here's where it changes the changes a little bit in 2012. There were some years there between that. I think there was another book in there. Yeah. Yeah. So there was the flip side that was 2011. And then I wrote how to choose a husband. Um, and then I was about to to market that book and I wrote a piece for Fox News my agent at the time not agent my publicist at the time had got me that gig with Fox News where you know because I ended up writing for them for a number of years um called the war on men that was in November November of 2012 and it was in preparation for my book that was coming out that February a couple months later so when you have a new book coming out, you want to, you know, get an article out there in the news that's related to the book and it sort of sets it up for, you know, this, this thing is coming and get some excitement or what have you. So I, I wrote The War on Men and um, it was essentially slamming feminism and what's happened in the last 40 years um, with respect to um, women's so-called rise in society and men's demotion and what that looks like on the relationship end. And long story short, it, it, it remains one of the most read op-eds in Fox News history. And so it went gangbusters. And, of course, feminists got a hold of it. And next thing you know, I'm on The View, and I'm up in New York, and I'm doing the whole, you know, lineup. And um, that was also the period what I would receive, because, because feminists got a hold of it, they simultaneously, you know, pumped it up and made it really big, which was good. On the other side, I got a lot of hate mail, needless to say. Um, and that was really overwhelming because it kept coming left and right. Somehow my, I don't know, my email was, I guess it was more public at the time. I don't know. But that was, that was crazy. I think these experiences really toughened me. Um, like any experience like that would, you either get crushed or you toughen up. And I think it was more, you know, I have a very thick skin. I always have, but I think it was more the shock between the media, between the media bias stuff and then being on the receiving end of fem feminist vitriol. I think it was more in shock that humans can actually behave in this way and that they can be so blind to an ideology. I think that's the part. It wasn't receiving the attacks as much as it was, wait, there are people who actually think think like this, who, who really live with this kind of hate, who, um, cannot think or read for themselves. They just take what they're told with, like, I just couldn't get my head around it. So that was, that was my big foray into, into the whole world of media bias, feminist bias, all of it. Um, 
so that went on for a few years, you know, I mean, I, cause I would continue to write for Fox news, as I said, for a couple of years and, um, pretty much all my articles were, you know, very controversial and people, I mean, there was a lot of love on it and a lot of, Hey, it's sort of like the Trump thing, right? <laughs> you either love the person or hate the person, I guess. Um, Okay. And then, so now that takes us up to sort of where I am currently. So in 2017 was my next book. That's, you know, three or four years later. It's not like I churn out a book every year. It's not like that. It takes several years. Um, I wrote a much more personal book and that's where you all, I think probably come in as far as, I don't know how many people who are listening now know me from back then, what I was just describing, I'm thinking that you know me more recently. And it's probably since the release of the Alpha Females Guide to Men and Marriage. And that was, that came out in 2017. And that book was what I call part memoir, part self-help. So it was, um, I was struggling with my marriage um, I mean, my husband, Bill, he will say the same thing. It's not a secret. You know, we were, I mean, n struggling like anybody struggles, you know, just many, many years had gone by and we were having um, difficulties communicating and couldn't quite figure out why. And I think that eventually leads people, because I think it happens to everybody, um, to start thinking about their parents' marriages, you know, and what they, what they absorbed. And what they saw. And it, this is something that sort of, you know, it takes years to kind of sift through it all and piece it together. And especially becoming parents, that's a big part of it. Anybody here who's married with kids knows exactly what I'm talking about. It just, it just comes up. And you start to think a lot more deeply about these things. So we struggled a bit to try and sort of get it right. And in so doing, I, because this is what writers do. In order to process what's going on in my life, I need to write about it, right? That's that's literally what we do. In fact, sometimes we're just writing about it just for our own personal reasons, and then we tailor it eventually to, you know, and streamline it to what we think other people would, you know, want to, how, how they could be helped from it, and so how to best, what you know, what book to provide. I don't know exactly how the book started, but it ended up being a little bit of an analysis about my parents marriage and specifically my mom's personality um, and how that affected me growing up and the dynamic between my parents I didn't want in my own marriage. And while it was never anything like that, it, it, it had remnants of where I could see it sort of feeling that way. Um, and I didn't want it to be that way. So we, you know, we, we, we were very mindful of how to um, what we've what we were what we each absorbed growing up. I want to say this right: what we each absorbed growing up and brought to the table, and then trying to marry those two um, mindsets and personality traits and all of that to get it to a place where you know it worked for us. And then in addition to that understanding, also understanding sex differences, right? And how men think and how women think and what they bring to the table and what that, you know, dance is all about. Um, so it was sort of a, 
it's a combination of looking at personalities and sex differences mixed with, you know, the kinds of things we learned growing up and that we might need to, you know, shed in order to have a good relationship. So that was the process for me for a couple of years. And the end result was this book, The Alpha Female's Guide to Men and Marriage. And I basically applied what I learned um, to in an attempt to help other people who could relate. I mean, that was, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. So, um, that kind of, ever since the war on men and then the subsequent book, the alpha females, I'm, that's what pushed me into the marriage and relationship strictly into that territory away from the whole motherhood thing after I'd spent many years on that. So I've been sort of happily ensconced in, in that, in this domain for, for a number of years now. And then I eventually got certified as a, as a coach, which I'm going to come back to some people have asked some questions that I've collected and I'm going to answer a question about that in a moment. So yeah, so that leads us to where we are now. Um, publishing has changed dramatically over the last 20 years and I'm now with, well, I love my publisher. Um, but it's just, it's the whole, industry has changed dramatically. And at any rate, I've just begun, I have a new shop page on my site, SuzanneBanker.com. That is fun and exciting for me because I've never self-published anything. I've always been traditionally published and I've decided to go out on my own with some eBooks that are shorter, cheaper, not on Amazon, not with a publishing company. Just, you can just go to my site and get them. And I'm enjoying this very much. It's a completely different animal. I don't have an editor. I do everything myself. Um, it's very empowering. It's very great. Um, so, so that's so th that's where my focus is now. Is you know churning out those eBooks that are related to the podcast and the coaching that I do. So um, it's sort of like putting on paper what I what I'm working on with couples, so that um, those. All of these things go together. What I talk about in the podcast, what I do in my coaching business, and then what I write about on these eBooks all sort of come together to help people have, of course, better marriages, stronger marriages. So that's the trajectory. And um, that takes us to where I am right now with this podcast, which is how I started um, this episode with, is explaining that this has been going on for about a year. And um, yeah, that's my story. When you got married, things were perfect. You were both in love and life was good. Then somewhere along the line, everything changed. She changed, or maybe he did. Either which way, now your relationship feels, well, hard. I coach husbands and wives who feel lonely, disrespected, or misunderstood in their relationship. So many women today are desperate for their husbands to step up to the plate, to make a decision and to stick to it, to lead rather than to follow. Ladies, you have the power to make it happen. Men respond best to women who are grounded in their feminine core. As for husbands, so many of them want their wives to stop nagging and to just trust them, to smile more and to complain less, to look at them the way they did when they were first dating. Men, you have the power to make it happen. Women respond best to men who are grounded in their masculine core. The secret to lasting love rests in the masculine-feminine dance. Once you master it, your relationship will no longer be difficult. You'll be moving with the biological tide rather than against it. And that makes marriage smooth sailing. If you're struggling in your relationship, if you feel frustrated or alone, I can help. Just go to SuzanneBanker.com, that's S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-V-E-N-K-E-R.com, and click on the coaching button at the top. Don't wait another minute to acquire the mindset you need to find love and to sustain it. It's so much easier than you think. That's SuzanneVenker.com. 
Okay, so I have a couple of questions here. I hope that was quick enough. I didn't, I didn't bore you to tears. Um, I have a couple of questions here from some readers that I collected ahead of time when I told them I was going to be doing this solo podcast. This is one. How did your perspective affect how you raised your daughter? And have you been able to instill in her, or rather, has she adopted her own value of these countercultural views? That's from Johanna. Johanna? Johanna. So, um, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, the short answer is, uh, obviously, it's, it, it's everything. It, my, my, my perspective completely colored my parenting. Fortunately, my husband and I are on the exact same page. And so we have taught our children exactly what we believe as all parents. That's the only thing you can do. You're not going to teach them something you don't believe. So you model it and you discuss it, um, or at least we do, in great detail. And because of what I do for a living, my kids got, and my daughter especially, um, had such a different upbringing than her friends did. Um, she knows so much more about how things work that their friends wouldn't know. Well, for example, so media bias, you know, and, and what, and, and, and understanding that everything that you're receiving is, is just a headline, you know, and that it doesn't mean anything. And you, and, and when you're young, you, you, you're very emotional and you tend to believe that stuff. She, because of the way she's been raised, she knows that's bogus. Now, here's what's interesting. And yes, to answer your question, she very much is following in my footsteps in terms of mapping out of life where um, being a mom is front and center. Um, and interestingly enough, she's she's also majoring in education, going to be an elementary school teacher. Um, but here's the thing that's interesting about her. It, even though she's in agreement for the most part about, you know, these general ideas, I don't mean we're in agreement politically on everything because she's, you know, 20. And when you're 20, you're, you know, when you're 20, you're, well, anyway, that's another conversation. So she doesn't, she's not, um, she doesn't like conflict. I mean, she's not anti, she's not a conflict avoidant, but she doesn't want to walk in to the storm, right? And get on her soapbox the way I do. She has zero desire whatsoever to be on her soapbox. So even though she's privately in agreement and is constructing her life in that way, she never discusses it to the point where her friends barely know what I do. I mean, they do, but she just doesn't like to talk about it. So I, you know, I, it's hard to be countercultural when you're 20, you know, she's a very different personality than I do. Very different. Um, and she just doesn't, she just doesn't care really honestly about getting into it with people. And that's totally fine. You know, it's much more important to me that, you know, she, she has the information that she needs to make good, smart, healthy decisions. That's all I ever, that's all my husband and I ever really wanted for our kids. It wasn't about do what I say, do what we do, think how we think. It was about, Hey, here are the facts that you're not going to get from the culture. Now go do it, go do what you will with it. But just as long as we've done our part in passing that on. So hopefully that answers that question. Um, another gentleman, uh, I mean, not another gentleman, a gentleman, Viram, I think it's, maybe it's a woman. I don't know. V-E-R-U-M, um, asks, when did I start writing? How old were my kids then? And how did I manage my time as I took care of the kids? So I think I, I think I kind of went through that already at the beginning. Um, 
manage my time because I literally, when I was writing the books, this is before the publicity period hit, um, not the books, sorry, one book. It was only one book and I had one kid. And so I remember to this day how it happened. You know, she'd get up at seven. I'd get up at six, five thirty or six. I'd get an hour in. She got up at seven. She went back down for a nap at nine thirty. Isn't this funny that I remember this? Um, and I'd go back to the computer at nine thirty. She'd get up an hour and a half later. We'd be up for a few hours together. Then she'd go back down for her afternoon nap from one to three. I'd write again, and then from three to seven we were together, and she's back in bed. Now it's not as I mean, it, it's a little more complicated than that. In that, of course, I had my husband. If I were alone, that wouldn't have worked so well, but I also had his help. So there were there was a period of time where he and I just literally didn't go out together on the weekends, and it was, uh, you know, an agreement in advance. You know, it's going to take me X amount of months to do this, and I need you to have the kids on X amount of days so I can do this. So it was, you know, it, it was manageable. It was very manageable. Um, but again, once as I say, once you put in another child into the equation, just forget about it. You know, it's not going to work out like that. So um, that's why I sort of dropped out for a while until they were in school. Um, okay, and then finally, last question I'm going to answer is from Angie. She said, um, I'm curious what your background is with respect to the coaching. I've always wondered what makes a person, quote, unquote, qualified to be a coach. No disrespect, just curious how people trust you when you don't have those big letters after your name. Okay. So this is really important to understand, which is why I wanted to answer this question about coaching versus counseling. You know, they are very different things. And I actually have on my coaching page on my website, there's a chart that discusses the difference there that lays out the difference between coaching and counseling. Coaching requires often requires, uh, excuse me, counseling often requires or does require a degree. Coaching, what matters most is your experience. So it's the difference between a degree and your experience. And the way I like to describe it is, let's say you were somebody who needed to lose 50 pounds and you had two options. You could go to a nutritionist who studied, you know, the body and how it works and so on and so forth and has whatever those letters are after their name? Or would you like to just go to the person who used to be 50 pounds heavier, lost it, and kept it off? Which person are you going to want to go see? And to me, it's a no-brainer. The thing about having letters after your name, it's not that, it's not that there can't be good counselors out there. It's that you don't know enough about their own personal story. I mean, there are a lot of divorced counselors, and I don't feel like that's in any way empowering if a couple's in crisis, especially. Um, and then you also have the issue of the politics of being part of a system like that and what you are allowed to say and you're not allowed to say and so forth and so on. And as a coach, that's not an issue. So people typically know by the time they get with me what I think about all kinds of things because I am an open book and you can do your research and find out everything you want to know about me and decide for yourself, Hey, is this someone I respect and admire and want to get advice from right with a counselor? You can't do any of that. You have no idea what they think about you know, politics. You have no idea what their personal life is, whether they've been successfully married or not. I mean, you just don't have anything to go on. So I think that's a really unique part of the coaching world 
that is very new in the last 10 years. The whole coaching thing, I think, took off in the last 10 years because of the Internet. You know, you can, you can help people from all over the world via your computer. And, of course, if you're a counselor, you pretty much see people just in your local area there, one-on-face-to-face. You know, uh, face face. So, so, yeah, that's the difference between them. And the experience that you've had um, being in the same boat as the person you're coaching, okay, and then having come out on the other end, is is just incredibly empowering. People want that. I would want that, right? If I were seeking help. And so to me, it's a no-brainer. And now for the email of the day it comes from Leela. She writes, "Dear Suzanne, I really enjoy your podcast and look forward to it every week. You mentioned you wanted to hear more from people in happy marriages as opposed to the doom and gloom message we receive." about how hard marriage is. I'm in a very happy marriage despite being raised by feminist parents who had a very unhappy marriage with a lot of fighting that ended in divorce when I was 25. Even as a child in their home, I couldn't understand why they were so selfish and fought in such immature ways. When I turned 18, I decided to reject feminism and embrace traditional gender roles. I got married at age 25 to a wonderful man, and we have such a great time. We both believe strongly in femininity and masculinity and get along so well and almost never fight. I allow him to be a man and I refuse to nag him as my mother did. Thank you so much for your show. You're doing a very important thing. Okay. So that's from Leela and I just, thank you, Leela. And I wanted to, I wanted to, I'm going to try and make a concerted effort to share more of the notes that I get, whether it's on Facebook or Instagram or via the podcast, because I I'm so fortunate to be on the receiving end of all this great stuff. And a lot of times people only see the, my, my naysayers and they don't have that, the advantage of, of the other side of it. So that's, and I think that's why they sometimes wonder like, how do you do what you do when you get so much crap? And the the truth is I really don't get that much. I get, I mean, I think I used to back in the day, but I get, for every one negative comment, I have 20 letters from people who are thanking me, but other people don't see that. So I want to, I want to try and get that out there so that people have more positive energy when it comes to these issues between women and men. Because I think that what we hear and what we see, and certainly even myself, what I point out in a lot of my articles is what's wrong, you know, what's, what we're doing wrong. But I, I, you know, that's why this, that's why last week's podcast with Tiffany Couch was so important because I want to hear more from everyday people for whom you will not necessarily hear in the media. And I, and they have stories to tell and those stories are empowering. So if you um, think you might be one of those people who has something, I want something to say that is very positive and uplifting. I want to hear from you. And that ends this hour of the Suzanne Venker show. Don't forget to tune in next week when we talk with sociologist and professor Brad Wilcox about the myth of the soulmate. And don't forget to continue the conversation on Facebook. Just type in The Suzanne Benker Show in the Facebook search bar and you will find it. Also, please recommend this podcast to one friend you think would enjoy it. And don't forget to leave us a review on whatever platform you're now using. Finally, if you have a question or comment for me, you can email me at Suzanne at the Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week. <laughs>